0: Does anybody remember Clippy? Clippy? Microsoft Clippy? Okay. Um, Microsoft introduced Clippy. Uh, see how cute he is? Um, all the way back in 1997, Windows 97. Some of you might still be using that. Um, but then it showed up in other versions off and on. And I read an article this week that they actually brought Clippy back for just a short time this winter. Uh, but uh, Clippy's not, not very popular, so he's gone again. So, Clippy was brought to us as an office assistant that would pop up to offer help. Uh, Sort of like this, you know. Uh, It looks like you're writing a letter. Would you like help? Uh, Get help with writing a letter. Number two, just type a letter without help. And the most popular one, don't show me this tip again, okay? So uh, that was Clippy. Um, helpful or annoying, uh, Clippy obviously became kind of a source of, of criticism and parody and, and memes, as you might imagine. Uh, things like this one. Hi, I noticed you are a software developer. Would you like me to fill your inbox with unsolicited messages from recruiters? Yes or yes. Okay, see, that's good. So I thought that's pretty good. Well earlier this week I was looking at a few uh humorous Babylon B um posts. Uh, everybody know what Babylon B is? It's sort of a, a satirical. Anybody know what the onion is? This is an evangelical onion, okay? So it's sort of a, a, a satire parody, okay? And um uh they the, the 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 title was this: Logos Update Introduces Microsoft Clippy to Correct Pastor's Unbiblical Sermons. Isn't that great? I like that. Uh, Logos is a sermon writing resource, and here's the article. Uh, Bellingham, Washington is the byline. The programming team behind Logos Bible Software announced Wednesday that an upcoming program update will include an officially licensed version of Microsoft's Clippy Digital Assistant, an on-screen anthropomorphized paperclip who has been programmed to correct weak and unbiblical sermons being typed up in Logos 7's sermon editor. Um, so here, here it is. So here's Clippy, Uh, here's all these really kind of weak points, and Clippy says, possible heresy detected. Um, And then at the end of the article, it says this, at publishing time, Logos had confirmed several more of Clippy's new phrases, such as, for goodness sake, would you stop talking about yourself and start preaching Christ crucified for once? Isn't that great? (laughs) So I'm going to. Um, (laughs) But the heresy detection does have me a little bit scared this morning, (laughs) uh, as I try to answer and continue to try to answer this question, what happened on the cross? As we consider the many different theories and models and explanations of what we call atonement, there are some strong proponents and some views, and some are so strong in their views that they cry foul at some of the other views and threaten to have Clippy show up with a possible heresy detection. Now, Babylon B is a satire, it's humor, but seriously, this, this has stoked con, uh, compassions over the years of what really happened. What's our best way to explain it? The simple question of what happened on the cross, of course, is that Christ died and forgave my sin, forgave our sin. But as we've opened up the topic in the last three weeks, we've seen that there are some deeper issues to look at and understand so that we can understand the depth and the, and the fullness of this gift of salvation that has come to us. But the cross is the key event, the key turning point. In answering the question about the cross and how God's love moves towards us, we have come to call that the atonement, the atonement. The atonement is the, the saving work that God did through Christ to reconcile the world to himself. We've seen that it comes It's an English word that was put together, at one meant, meaning we become one again with God. Making what was once one creation and and a perfect relationship with God and then was seriously broken by the fall into sin, bringing that back together again, bringing reconciliation, healing a broken relationship, bringing estranged parties back together, making amends, reparations at one man. We have approached trying to learn from three sort of different directions, asking who is the subject or the object of the atoning work of Christ. In other words, what was standing in the way of forgiveness and salvation? And we kind of defined it as God word, human word, and uh, Satan word. Week one, we looked at the perspective of of the God word focus, that the work of Christ primarily addresses a a demand of God, God's justice, and, and, and themes of substitution, of Christ taking our place sacrifice, justification, penalties. God's wrath figures into this view that God's wrath needed to be appeased and a punishment needed to happen and Jesus takes the punishment. These theories are called the satisfaction theory or the penal substitution, aton- scenario atonement. Two, we looked at some of the perspectives that come from a human word focus that is the ongoing work of Christ was designed to affect a change in human beings we are the ones who needed to be cleansed of our sin and 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 renewed and restored and reconciled to God and so we talked about a, a healing view or a view of reconciliation we looked at how the love of God that nothing changed in the heart of God he didn't change from a wrathful God to a loving God but was always a loving God and we talked about the life of the blood that comes and cleanses our sins Last week, our friend Dennis Edwards brought us the perspective that we call as, as, as Satan word. The, the, the death of Christ brought a divine victory over the power of darkness and evil and our enslavement to sin. A ransom has been paid to secure our freedom. So we talked about the Christus Victor model. Christ is the victor or the ransom theory. And today we're going to try to put it together to learn from and, and see and appreciate the wonder of this gift, this grace, this forgiveness, and be inspired to walk then into this reconciled relationship with God through an active living walk with Jesus. So here's what I've been putting in front of us, and I say it again, that there are several biblical ways in which to understand and explain atonement, the saving work of Christ and the cross. In and through them all, God moves towards us in love so that we might not only be forgiven and reconciled. Now, that's the first thing that happens. We are forgiven and reconciled. But not only that, but that the church might become a community of faith marked by grace, reconciliation, and participation in kingdom work. So that's what I hope to do this morning, and I hope that Clippy doesn't show up with a heresy alert. (laughs) As we do that, though, I want to just take a little bit of time to talk about the cross, about crucifixion, about the cross and its place in first century Palestine and Rome. See, the cross was not the only form of capital punishment in Jesus' day, but it was one of the most cruel and heinous forms of punishment. And the cross, crucifixion was used more of as a deterrent for other crimes than it was as a retribution or a punishment. Think about it. The crucifixions usually took place, there were several at once. It usually took place along a crowded road where there was lots of traffic. And crucifixion is ugly because it takes so long to die. So there's more benefit for the Romans to have someone hanging publicly and suffering for long, long hours before death came. It was there for a deterrent. It was there for maximum deterrent effect. In other words, somebody walks by and says, I don't want to die die that way. I better obey myself. It was a savage treatment, and not just because of the bodily torture, but also because in that culture, honor and shame were sometimes even more important than suffering bodily harm. Bodily torture was not the worst kind of injury sometimes. There was such a thing as actually dying with honor and dying with nobility, but crucifixion brought with it the pain of dishonor and humiliation. It was the most humiliating way to die. There was no honor. It was all shame. And we hear it coming at Jesus in the biblical account as we read the text in the, at the end of that week. They were spitting on him. They were striking him in the face. They were ridiculing him. They were mocking him. They were making fun of him. They were hanging him naked in public and the further humiliation of his friends even abandoning him. Humiliation and shame. Rome did not subject its own citizens to this kind of punishment. It was reserved for those who resisted imperial rule. We hear the words later in the week, we have no king but Caesar, and this one says that he is king. The Romans put forward then crucifixion. The Jewish authorities supported it because they heard blasphemy in Jesus. They didn't do crucifixion. They killed by stoning But the Romans were in charge. It all got cranked up. The spirit towards, heading towards crucifixion got cranked up on that first Palm Sunday. There was this great parade and the palm branches and the hosannas. But what was going on was Jesus was finally allowing all of this public attention to come. This proclamation of who he was. In a sense, this entry into Jerusalem said, I am fulfilling the scriptures. I am the Messiah. These were the words and the actions of a king coming in peace. These were the words and the actions and the acclamations that pointed to one who came as Savior. And it all went downhill in the week that followed. He got them even more riled up with the overturning the tables of the money changers in the temple. And on Friday, finally, the crucifixion. The weak heads all the way down to the ugliest and most humiliating form of death. But could you hear it in the words of Scripture that Gwen just read for us? It says, have the, minds, the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the form, very nature God, the incarnation there, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's what Paul is getting at here. He didn't just die. He died this way, the ultimate humiliating death. Paul's here not only talking about the incarnation, but God became man to to identify with us, to draw near and to take away our sins. But in the ugliness of the crucifixion is how he died. But then what happens in this passage of scripture? What happens to the one that goes to the lowest place? Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, and gave in the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God in Christ turning the whole world value system upside down. God taking the powerful down and raising up the humble. God bringing forgiveness and cleansing from sin. God canceling out the power of the enemy. God bringing reconciliation and the hope of wholeness and shalom again. At peace with God. One with God and his purposes in the world. And the humiliating death in the cross. Atonement. The cross is at the very center of the atonement. It is the pivotal event. But it is not. It is not the only part of atonement. In a sense, the whole life of Jesus brings atonement, this at-one-ment. From his miraculous and humble birth to his loving service, his powerful healing, his humiliating death on the cross, his resurrection, his ascension. All work together to redeem, to justify, to heal, to ransom, to reconcile broken humanity so that we might be led into the very presence of God. Wait, did you just hear those words that I used in that long string of words? Redeem, justify, heal, ransom, reconcile. Those are the words, those are the acts of God that spring from these different models of atonement that we have talked about and learned about. Some have received greater emphasis depending on the perspective, whether we're looking to God and what needed to change there, or if we're looking towards Satan and what needed to change there, or if we're looking to our own hearts at what needed to change there leading us to things like penal substitutionary atonement, ransom, healing, whatever. The question then comes in a study like this, which one best explains what happened on the cross? Which one is the overarching perspective that gives meaning to what Christ did? And of course, I realize I, I, I created a risk here, but you could say, well, we like the way Dennis preached about it all better than you did, Scott, so that might be the way make the decision, but whatever. But seriously, which one... It's the one overarching perspective that gives meaning to what Christ did. I've read a couple books for this series, one that I mentioned and quoted from is this one, The Nature of Atonement, Four Views, and these four different views uh, uh, by four different authors. But this week I read this one, it's um, it's called A Community Called Atonement by, by Scott McKnight, some of you might know Scott uh, McKnight's name, he used to teach at North Park University in the Bible department there, he's now at Northern Seminary, uh, he's well known for his book The Jesus Creed, he's written tons of books and a popular blog writer as well. I'm personally uh, fond of him because he spells his name the right way. But anyway, um, but seriously, McKnight's approach is very scholarly. It's very biblical, but he has this way with words and humor that kind of draw you in. And as he discusses the various views, he asks, he asks this question. Actually, one of the titles chap, chapter titles is which is the fairest of them all kind of gives you a hint to his, like the way he approaches things. Okay. And he uses the analogy of golf clubs. Now, If you know me, you know I'm not a golfer, but I grew up in a golfing family. I received golf lessons. I heard golf discussed around the dinner table. So even though I am not a golfer, I speak golf. So anyway, I understand this analogy. At a dinner table one night, a companion asked me which of my golf clubs was my favorite. I'd never been asked that question, and it struck me as odd. My answer went something like this. When I'm at 150 yards, I like to knock down my 7-iron. When I'm at 200 yards and there's no wind, I like my 3-iron. When I'm on the tee box, if the fairway is open, I like my driver. On the green, I like my putter. When I'm in the bunker around a green, I like my sand wedge. And when I'm at 80 yards and in the fairway, I like my lob wedge. I never had a lob wedge. So I said to him, I don't have a favorite club. I use all 14 clubs in my bag. But I once played with a man who did have a favorite club. And it was the only one he carried That solitary club had to be adjusted so that it could be flat like a putter and angled like irons. The reason he had only one club was that in his own words, I'm too lazy to carry a bag full of clubs. You can guess that he wasn't a very good golfer either. But I must admit that he did pretty well for being a one clubber. And then he goes on, he said, the story illustrates the central metaphor in this book about atonement. Some atonement theories today are one club theories that have to be adjusted each time one plays the atonement game. (laughs) This is unfortunate because we have a big bag of images in our Bible, and we need to pull each from the bag if we are to play out the fulsomeness of the redemptive work of God. The game of atonement requires that players understand the value of each club as well as the effort needed to carry a bag big enough and defined enough so that one knows where each club fits in that bag. He says later, he brings the analogy back uh, throughout the book, He says, for those chasing down the golf metaphor of this book, I'll put it this way. A good golfer learns to trust each club to do what each club can do. I can't ask my seven iron to go 200 yards and I don't ask my driver to get me out of a bunker. And a good golfer learns to know her club so she can use the right club at the right time and let that club do what it needs to do. Meaning each theory addresses the different needs for reconciliation and recognizes the multiple context which people come from to Christ. We come from different places and different frames of reference and we, we need to understand these theories come from different places. Maybe, probably one of the best, easiest ways to describe this idea of coming from different contexts is, is the versions of the Lord's Prayer. Who grew up with trespasses? I did. I was a good Methodist kid. Who still thinks that's what we should do because that's what we do to my church? Yeah. Who grew up with debts and debtors? Okay, well, it looks like we're a little, yeah. Who grew up with sins? If you're younger and you grew up in this church, you didn't know about trespasses and debt, but those came from different worlds. Uh, trespasses came from the, an agrarian world where agriculture, in the, even all the way back to the feudal system before other things were set up in government, and so trespassing was a, the ultimate violation, whereas debts and debtors comes from a world more oriented to commerce and, and, and exchange of funds, and so debts and debtors made more sense. The word in scripture is really sins, but we've, it, it reflects our background. And, and that's really what happens. Uh, these, 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 meta, these ways of looking at atonement are really like metaphors of what actually happens. McKnight discusses the theories as metaphors and says that atonement language includes several evocative metaphors, metaphors that sort of evoke us towards one of these areas that we emphasize when we talk about atonement. He says there is a sacrificial metaphor There's the idea of sacrifice, you read that in the scripture, it talks about Jesus' death as sacrifice, and it looks towards a sin offering that's made. There are legal metaphors, in other words, a court system, and that looks towards justification. There are interpersonal metaphors of how we do or don't get along with each other, and that looks toward the need for reconciliation. There are commercial metaphors, things that happen in the marketplace and exchanging of, of, of money for goods, and that brings up the redemption metaphor. And there are military metaphors that speak of fighting and of powers and of enslavement. And that points to the ransom uh, images and metaphors and victory. All help explain what happened on the cross from different perspectives. And in the writing of the Apostle Paul, two or three of these metaphors show up in one paragraph. Paul wasn't sitting there going, boy, I better play to the penal substitutionary people with this talk now. And I better play to those that think it's more of a healing view. Paul just wrote about the sacrifice of Christ. And Paul's great at blending metaphors. And he doesn't care if he doesn't follow through with each one. He's just trying to explain what happened in the death of Christ. Joel Green is the one who wrote the chapter in the Nature of Atonement, the, the fourth view. We've talked about the, the, the healing view, the God words, human word, um, Satan word. But his fourth view, he calls a kaleidoscope view, which brings them together, implying that they all work together to give us the best view of what happens. And he has a listing similar to Scott McKnight's, but instead of metaphors, he speaks of what he calls images from public life in Bible times. Images from public life in Bible times. And you'll see that it's very similar the court of law, commerce, relationships, worship, sacrifice, triumph over evil. And I would add to his list, uh, from our discussion and learning a couple weeks ago, the world of medicine and the image of healing that would happen as well. Joel Green concludes and says this, so limited is the ground on which we walk, and so infinite the mystery of God's saving work, that we may need many interpretive images, many tones, many voices. He says the biblical narrative authorizes an expansive range of images and models for comprehending and articulating the atonement. And in a sense, that's where I'm landing, going back to this paragraph that I put before. us, that there's several biblical ways in which to understand and explain the atonement, the saving work of Christ to the cross. In and through them all, God moves towards us in love so that we might not only be forgiven and reconciled to him as individuals, but that the church might become a community of faith marked by grace, reconciliation, and participation in kingdom work. And I want to get to that last part before we're done. But that the church might become a community of faith marked by grace, reconciliation, and participation in kingdom work. In fact, that's the point of Scott McKnight's book, what he calls it, says it's a community called atonement. He asks this kind of audacious question Does atonement work? Does it work? Are Christians any better than anyone else in their relationship with God, self, others in the world? Are we different? Are we more loving? Are we more forgiving? Are we more peaceful? This is where this understanding of atonement has to move from our heads and and debating all that we've heard and what's right. It moves from our heads and what we believe, what what we know to be true, and it moves beyond that. And it moves beyond what I just get. I get forgiven. I get freedom. I get peace. I get to heaven. That's true, but it moves beyond that. The question moves beyond that. Atonement does not only come as just as a gift to me, but it comes to the church and it shapes, it ought to shape who we are as a church. It ought to shape what we stand for and how we as communities, how we act, how we serve, how we minister, how we care for one another and how we care for those outside the walls of our church. It ought to shape who we are. We ought to be those who have been free and we act as those who are forgiven, who are cleansed of our sin, who are redeemed, who are justified, who are healed, who have been ransomed and set free and those who are reconciled. Those, those that are at the very heart of the gospel. Those are what shapes our community of faith and what we bring to a world in need. The powerful words about the cross in our reading from uh, Philippians starts with, have the same mindset as Jesus. All that wonderful stuff that Paul wrote, that Gwen read for us, Paul is not saying, I better teach him a little bit about the cross and atonement. He's telling him how to behave. He said, you guys in Philippi have got to get along. You need to have a different mindset than the world that you live in. In fact, you ought to have this mindset The mindset of Jesus, let the cross and the atonement, the humiliation and exaltation of Jesus, shape who you are as a community of faith. Scott McKnight remarkably says this. He said, atonement is something done not only by God for us, but also something we do with God for others. If that sounds a little crazy, listen to what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though we were making, as though, as though God were making His appeal through us. We implore you, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made Him who know, knew no sin to be sin for us, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. We are reconciled and have been given the ministry of reconciliation. I just want to. Close with four encouragements. Close was the key word some were looking for, but we've we, we got to follow up on this and let it motivate some, some deeper thinking and some deeper study. And so here I have four encouragement. First of all is receive this gift that atonement brings. If belief is just something in your head and, and, and perhaps Christian faith is something you're aware of, but don't feel you've ever really seized onto the fullness of what it means that Christ has died for you to set you free, cleanse you to renew you to redeem you receive the gift that atonement brings welcome the embrace of jesus and then thank god for his astounding and unconditional love love is at the core of all of this and second my encouragement to you is strengthen give shape to this community of faith around this gospel core this is the gospel core who we are in christ crucified It will be known in the realities of forgiveness, reconciliation, healing, and freedom that we experience and we talk about together and we celebrate together and we agonize over together. And thirdly, understand that living missionally is not an outreach program. It's not one more thing your church is asking you to do, sign up, and do. Rather, we live on mission if we live in Christ. Rather, encourage each other to look not only to yourselves, but outward to those around you. Yes, in the community of faith and beyond. God has sent you. To be missional means to be sent, and we are all sent ones. Encourage each other to look outward to the neighborhood, to your workplace, your school, to those who need the love of God and the atoning work of Christ to bring them fully life. That's what I mean by doing kingdom work. And fourthly, with this understanding, you know, our monthly Lord's Supper also ought to take on a much deeper meaning. We need to remember this more. We need to remember what we've learned and wrestled with around the atonement when we come to the communion table. I think we should do it every week. Oh, that makes the service longer and somebody's got to set it up. Whatever, but (laughs) I'm not proposing that. But I'm proposing that when we do come to the communion table, that we let the deepness deep significance of it, that Jesus gave us this gift to say, you will get to reenact the atonement every time you take communion. It's a reenactment. It's a form of obedience because Jesus said, do this until I come again. And it's a commitment to Jesus Christ. Now you might be thinking we don't do communion again until the first day of May. Ah, Thursday night. Come Thursday, it's one hour. One hour. And we don't linger and talk because we leave in silence. So it really is one hour. I want to encourage you to come Thursday night to Monday, Thursday with this deeper understanding of atonement in the cross and come ready to receive communion as a reenactment of what Jesus did for us with all the fullness that we've talked about here and a commitment to follow him and to trust him. And let it be that commitment to make atonement work as we move forward in the world as a church. Let's pray. Oh Lord, this is, um, (laughs) there's so much. There's so much and yet it's so simple that you, Jesus, are at the very center and that your sacrifice, your death, your shed blood your incarnation, all comes together to bring this gift of life and freedom and hope. So I pray, Lord, for all of my sisters and brothers today that even if we've gotten confused at a few points or it seems like too much, that we would be drawn closer to you. And now on this Palm Sunday, as we head into Holy Week, Lord, that we would give more attention to the cross on Thursday and Friday, to understand what you did, that we might rejoice more fully a week from today as we celebrate your resurrection. We love you, Jesus, and we pray this in your name.